Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Ali Perlman, your host broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I want to talk to you about how I bought an $80 million multifamily deal during COVID. So I have to say first and foremost, it wasn't easy. You know, anyone who's trying to show, you know, that they have, that they just, you know, closed on a huge deal during COVID and they're, you know, it was fun. It was going very smoothly. I don't buy it for a second because every real estate deal is different, has its own challenges, especially during COVID. And there were a lot of challenges, but I wanted to share with you how I was able to close a pretty large deal during a very, very challenging time. So first and foremost, I didn't buy it on my own. It's I don't own the property 100%. I have GP partners and I also have limited partners. So I'm a syndicator, which means that I find a deal, I underwrite it, I negotiate with the seller, I manage the asset from the first day of ownership until we sell it. And I do this with investors. So like every deal the lender is going to bring the line share of the proceeds to close the deal and you need to bring some money up front for the down payment. And for that portion, we're basically bringing investors that invest with us. We invest our money in the deals as well and also in the deal that we closed, Element 41, in Marietta, Georgia. That was a 494 units. And that was a syndicated deal. So we raised money from investors. We added our funds as well. And we brought Freddie Mac as the lender and that helped us, you know, close the deal. So first and foremost, in terms of the process, it's, you know, basically once you sign on an agreement, it takes about, I would say, two weeks to negotiate a contract, which is relatively quick. But I can tell you that, you know, the lawyers were working days and nights to complete the negotiation in two weeks. And then you have usually between 60 and 90 days to close to finalize the deal. So on this deal, Element 41, we closed it in 70 days. That's basically the time frame that we have in the contract. The first, you know, half, the first 30, 40 days, actually the first 30 days were for due diligence, which I'm going to talk about next. And then we had 30 to 40 days to finalize the debt in to close. And I want to share with you some of the things that I've learned and some of the things that we were going through as we were completing this transaction. But just to put things in perspective, this is the timeline, the time frame that we were dealing with. So the first portion of it is due diligence. When it comes to due diligence, some investors are choosing to not walk any units because of the dangers of, you know, just contracting COVID. Some 
investors choose to just walk some units and some investors want to walk all units. And when we got the deal awarded, you know, my JV partner and I were thinking what would be the right way to approach this. And my JV partner is Vina Jetty from Vive Funds. And at first, yeah, we were concerned about walking the units, exposing our teams to the danger of COVID. And then we realized that, you know, we can protect our teams and ourselves from COVID, you know, wearing hazmat suits, wearing N95 masks and, you know, coming prepared. And basically what we've done is that we've decided to walk all the units that we can out of the 494 units. We walked most of the units with the exception of, I believe, less than 20 units that we couldn't get into. And so what happened, so usually if we're not in a COVID environment, you have walkers, quote unquote. So they call walkers because they walk the units, they come with, you know, a list, they have certain things that they're looking at, you know, leaks, looking at some cracks, whether all the appliances are in place and they have a list of everything that is wrong with the unit and they go unit by unit. Usually it's two, three people. Sometimes it's more. They walk in, they see the units and they move to the next one. Now, because of COVID, we made a decision that we're going to have several walkers, two or three walkers that are walk the property. They're going to get in and out each unit. So each unit will have one walker. They're going to do the walk as quickly as they can. And as I mentioned, with the hazmat suits, with the masks and everything, and do a quick walk and then leave right away. So we didn't have multiple people getting into every unit. We had one person getting in a unit and out. And of course the unit, you know, the prior owner gave tenants a notice that someone is going to come and, and walk the property. And those who refused to let people in because of COVID, we basically had an arrangement that we're going to walk those units within 60 days after we close the deal. So walking those units, basically, that was our decision. I didn't feel comfortable buying anything that we're not walking, buying kind of a deal, you know, without walking the units, I felt very uncomfortable with that. And, you know, thankfully, you know, we took all the measurements that we had, all the precautions to not expose ourselves, our team or the tenants, and, you know, nobody got COVID, thankfully. But we've decided to really try and walk as many units as we can and do it quickly and efficiently. So that's how we tackled the unit walks. Now, in addition to the unit walks, you do need to bring third-party contractors, companies to do assessments, for instance, to, you know, basically complete a survey for the property. You need to bring an engineering company to complete the engineering report. And those companies are basically required by the lender. The lender is the one who is, you know, taking the highest risk here because they are basically wiring to the seller $60 million. The seal was closed at an $80 million. So around $60 million, less than $60 million, but around that number was our loan. And they're not going to initiate something like this without sending a lot of, you know, third parties. So it was a bit challenging to basically coordinate with everyone, but we actually had a great seller that was very cooperative. And every time we needed to get in the property to open the gates for a certain company, we reached out to the seller 
that was very communicative, very open to help, which was very helpful, especially during COVID. And I would be happy to do another deal with that company. And we said, hey, in two days, in three days, next week, we have company, you know, certain company that the lender is sending, we need to allow access, you know, to the property. And he was very cooperative. So that was a bit challenging, but we were able to do that. We made sure to start the process with the third-party companies ahead of time because they were like us working with smaller teams. So the lead time was longer than usual. If usually it takes a week to get them there, there was a two or three week waiting period. So we started the process while we were negotiating with the contract. I already started the process and wired funds to the lender as part of the down payment, the deposit, so they can book a time for them because I didn't want to have to wait a month or three weeks for them to get there. And that's how we tackle the due diligence. Most of the due diligence was done within the first two weeks after we signed the contract. And of course, we made sure that, you know, our property management company, First Communities, they were there. Again, everyone was wearing a mask. Everyone was keeping distance. And they were there to also do their part because part of their work during the due diligence process is also to do lease audit. And so they were also there and nobody got sick. Everyone, you know, was healthy, but that was a big part of, you know, trying to make sure that we're getting this thing done. We're getting all the information that we need, but we are being extremely, extremely careful and keeping everyone safe. That was the due diligence part. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the financials because this is something that is really, really important. And what I've noticed is that lenders, and it's very understandable during COVID, they're looking at vacancies, bad debt, delinquencies, concessions. Even before COVID, they have been looking at those numbers, but during COVID, every little change is important. So they're really looking into vacancies and how the vacancy changes every few weeks and every month since you put the deal under contract. Of course, you have to share financials with them. And before we shared it with the lender, we looked at how the numbers changed since last month. So has vacancy increased or decreased? What about the bad debt? What about delinquencies? Is the property offering higher concessions? You know, we looked also at the income, if the income increased or decreased, and thankfully for this property, it increased, and whether the expenses increased or decreased or stayed the same. And when we sent the financials to the lender, we made sure that we pointing, hey, this is what's happening with the property. Pay attention, you know, vacancy actually decreases bad debt is lower than last month. And of course, I don't need to tell them they'll see it for themselves, but it was important to point out all the good things that we see in the property. And if there's something that, if there was a trend that was not positive, then we made sure to reach out to the seller, which again was very cooperative and ask, hey, what's happening here? Why is the number changing? And if you get a good explanation that makes sense, then basically you know, you can share that with the lender and help the lender understand if anything happened. For instance, if there's a one-time high expense since we've purchased the property, 
but it's a one-time you know, expense that is not going to impact the property's expenses moving forward. It's an important context to add when you send the financials to the lender. So again, the lenders are sensitive to any change in the financials and it's totally, totally understandable. And if you have a deal under contract, just make sure that you review every line item that you understand every change and you understand what the story is behind those financials, the behind the changes. It's important to help the lender understand what is going on and if there's any change, you know, what's happening. I think that's going to be very helpful because if there's going to be any negative trend, any change, they're going to reach out and ask what's going on because they want to know that the property is not turning and, you know, it's going to perform worse and worse every month. So I think that's another part that we had to really pay attention to. Now, the third part, you know, besides the due diligence, besides the financials is investors. And if you're a, a syndicator listening or watching this on YouTube, then yes, it's more challenging to raise money from investors because some investors, they don't feel comfortable investing during COVID. Some investors want to wait until after the election and today is November 10th. So election is over. Well, depends who you're asking, but some of that uncertainty is not there. But when we were raising money for this deal, yes, there were a lot, a lot of you know, uncertainties. And one of the things that helped investors feel comfortable is the fact that I'm personally invested in the deal, that I'm signing on the loan. And that made them feel more comfortable that if I invested my money in the deal, that if I am signing, I feel comfortable signing on the loan, then it's more likely to be a good deal than a risky deal. Some investors did not feel comfortable. And I respect that. I understand that. And other investors felt comfortable in investing. And I think when it comes to real estate, you really got to understand the risk. What's more likely to happen that you're going to lose your investment or that you're going to maybe not make 7% cash on cash, but six and a half or 6%, which I think this is more a reasonable risk compared to losing your investment, which is a pretty extreme, you know, scenario. So as long as you feel comfortable with the risk, then it's totally fine, you know, to invest. I always say investors, if this is your last 50K, if you don't feel comfortable, if this is going to make you worry, save this money, don't invest because I want to handle investors' money you know, if they feel comfortable, they feel confident about the deal, they feel comfortable, you know, investing in the deal. If it's going to make you, you know, uncomfortable, if it means that you're going to lose sleep over it, then it's just not worth it for any of us, actually. And so the investor part was more challenging than pre-COVID. You know, investors, I think if the investment is very conservative, then investors did invest in it and they will invest in your deal if it's a conservative deal. I think the raise was slower than, you know, pre-COVID. Pre-COVID slots filled out pretty quickly. When it comes to, you know, during COVID, there's a large wave of investors that are investing right away. And then there's a little bit left and it's just slower to close. You know, there's some investors trickling down. That's at least what we've, you know, experienced until we close the raise. So, you know, that's basically it. And, you know, of course, you know, I think that when it comes to COVID, you have to be more careful than usual. You have to be very careful with the assumptions that you make in your underwriting. Don't assume you can increase the rents 
every year. Don't assume you can cut costs by, you know, 10, 15%. It might not be the case. Don't assume you can renovate, you know, units from the very first day of operations. So when you're underwriting, underwrite to maybe the worst case scenario. That's what we did with this deal. That's what investors liked about this deal. That basically, when we underwrote, we underwrote 0% rent increases in year one and very moderate rent increases in year two. We underwritten no renovations in year one. We basically didn't, you know, the first year NOI was a bit lower than the current NOI at the property before we bought it. And of course, we're going to do whatever we can to improve it. But these are the returns if we assume we don't do anything, we don't touch the property's income or expenses in the first year, and then improve it slowly in year two or three for underwriting purposes. What happens actually is that we're already working on renovations, we're already pushing rents, and that's just another buffer, you know, another addition to investors' returns, which hopefully we'll be able to do. And of course, it's not, you know, I'm not an investment advisor. This is not an offer to sell securities. I'm just sharing with you how, you know, I was able to purchase a pretty large deal during a very challenging time. And of course, I couldn't have done it without my JV partner, Vina Jetty from Vive Funds. Couldn't have done it without the other GPs in the deal that some of them would like to remain anonymous. And of course, we worked with some great fund managers that have helped bring in capital to this deal. And so, you know, I think that if you truly believe in that market, if you believe in that deal, then investors are going to see that, the lender is going to see that, and other partners and groups that are working with you are going to feel and believe that. So a lot of very, very long nights. It's hard business. Any business is hard to manage. No business is easy. This deal did not come easy to us. It took me a long time to find the right deal, to find the right property, to find the right seller that was reasonable and cooperative. And these things just take time persistent patience. So all of those things truly helped me, you know, purchase a pretty large deal during COVID during a very challenging times. And of course, I have the support of my husband and my family. My husband and and my father-in-law were very supportive throughout the whole process. And, you know, that's all that I'm going to say, but it's really good to be able to have the people that are closest to you you know, believe in you and support you. And, you know, I think that just have their support. It was extremely helpful to go through the whole process. And I spent countless hours talking about the deal. And now after we closed, the focus is to basically start with the value add, start implementing the value add plan, which we're already working on and make sure that investors are getting paid on time and getting paid based on the projection. So that's all for today. That's what I wanted to share with you on how I closed an $80 million deal during COVID. It was a very hard and uh, humbling you know, experience. And I'm proud and humbled to be able to close a deal and to have investors trust you know, and feel that investors, they trust me, they trust you know, the process, they believe in the deal. And I cannot tell you how much you know, that means to me. So that's it for today, guys. Be bold, be brave, stay healthy, and I'll see you
see you on the next episode. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.